0: Welcome to Wishes Granted. Today we talk with Sandy Roberts, formerly Program Manager of the Smallholder Development Unit at AgDevCo. Yes, that famous AgDevCo. We talk about the kinds of investments they are looking to make, an innovative way to increase smallholder farmer productivity. This was a workshop, and I think that it would be helpful for anyone writing a grant application to any organization to include the kind of workshop they use. Really blew my mind. We also talk about why smallholder farmers producing chickens were so resilient during the pandemic and what does that mean for the debate between centralized and decentralized agriculture, which is better. If you have an opinion, leave it a voice message and we will add your message or question to the next broadcast. All right, let's do this. Sandy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks Kyle. Great to be here.
0: Yeah. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you again. It's been several months since we talked last. And I thought that we'd start off talking a little bit about your work over the last five and a half years at AgDevCo, specifically in the smallholder development unit.
1: So, AgDevCo is a specialist impact investor. At AgDevCo, we invest in agribusinesses in sub Saharan Africa. And, and all we do is agribusiness. So we built up a lot of expertise over the last, I think it's very really close to 12 years now, I first started in Mozambique and expanded into Zambia, but now we have our footprints in Southern East and West Africa. So alongside that, on the investment side, we managed a grant fund, which was MasterCard foundation supported as well as Difford. and I had the great opportunity to be able to work with our current investees, not all of them, but most of our current investees, as well as those that we hadn't invested in. So again, through West, East, and Southern Africa, although the co- the countries that I was working in were more targeted, whereas AgDevCo wasn't restricted as to the countries that they were investing in or are investing in. Hmm.
0: And AgDevCo, who is that funded by? Because that's equity and debt organization
1: yeah so originally and
0: that's funding in like the three million dollar range it was looking like so
1: we we've actually evolved over time so we started off with very small SME investments that were made and probably around about the 500,000 to a million mark, funded by DFID primarily, just trying to reach out and seeing that the investments that have been made, or or we we really saw a great need. You know, there's much talk about the missing middle and sort of reaching out to agribusinesses that at that early stage of our investments could not really access traditional funding. They were a little bit too risky for for any of the, the normal banks or DFIs to have invested in them. And, uh, we were prepared to take that, that investment risk at that stage with support, um, from different. So that has evolved over, um, the period of time now, and our investment focus is more in the five to 10 million range. And our endeavor is at the end of the day to become more sustainable. And so in other words, we need to be covering our management costs, which I believe we're going to get there pretty, pretty soon. Probably the end of this year or early next year.
0: That's for the main fund.
1: That's the main fund. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's excellent. That uh, investments are actually getting a return.
1: Correct. But obviously looking at uh, the bigger ticket sizes, we still have the value to uh, be more inclusive. We right. we have through the, the three different ranges. So it's the seed funding, which is a very smaller amount of funding, the venture funding, and then the big growth deals that we're looking at. But it's mm. it's been an interesting transition, not easy, obviously with COVID. And that did obviously put pressure on the system, but we've got a, we've got a great team of people.
0: So, if someone wanted to apply for that main fund, yeah. what kind of companies is Agdevco looking for? So,
1: obviously, it's definitely not green fields. It's got to have you know proven proof of concept, brown fields with EBITDA over two million, preferably. And you're looking at the larger size companies that that could be in that space. The opportunity for growth and expansion, and they would get through to us on on the website, but also we've got some regional offices. So we we have our Southern Africa regional office in Malawi, in Nolongwi. East Africa is in Kenya and West Africa is in Ghana.
0: And you fund not just like the businesses that add value to agricultural products, but also the farm potentially.
1: So yeah, so primary investment in production, the processing, you know, along the value chain, wherever it makes sense, and is agriculturally related. And I'm
0: guessing though, even though you want to fund something that's pretty established, it's got to be somewhat innovative, otherwise a bank could fund it. So it's a little bit in, in the middle. So still. what
1: I need to to clarify is that's where we started, where we have transitioned to now, we, we are dealing with companies that are probably, and we're competing with other DFIs. And other banks so so they're probably more in the mainstream of the investment portfolios and so That's where we are targeting now, you know, when you when you're looking in the space between five and 10 million That's what you'd be looking at mm-hmm. So the smallest okay, seed great. investments we still want to do but our aim is to get it sustainable first and then we will Be coming back full circle to probably pick up one or two of those investment opportunities again
0: And I guess the smallholder development unit probably was positioned partially for that to get deal flow eventually for the larger fund.
1: I think in twenty twenty there was something like four countries that were operating in that the devaluation of the con- currency was quite significant in that time. So it's a challenging situation. And so with every investment we we we're looking at so how many, you know, more people are going to be employed, what is the impact on the the surrounding community? and particularly with smallholder farmers, and, and how do we incorporate that within the, the value chain? So some of the, the businesses were already working with smallholder farmers, some are wanting to expand their outgrow program, and some of them wanting just to go into new geographical areas, or, or even kind of a different value chain, so, so moving out from cotton into sesame, for example. And so, you know, just the need to look at reducing the risk and the exposure that working with smallholder farmers has so this is where we felt that there was a need for grant funding to come in alongside and support the, the investments that are made. And I can give you a classic mm-hmm. example of one of these. For example, Agdevco in the early stages had invested in a goat abattoir in Mozambique. And so it was a great investment. The, you know, it was also a central kind of hub and spoke type model. There were some many challenges. So their truck and trailer would go and pick up goats and would spend a whole week doing a thousand Ks circuit. And come back maybe with 120 goats and the goats that they would mm. bring in were really small you know sizes carcass sizes mm. so so we just uh, felt that they needed to be a more efficient way of operating and how do we aggregate goats, and how do we get a more centralized buying points established and that these buying points could then be a source of information knowledge transfer training good livestock practices, you know, simple things like part of the carcass had to be destroyed because of contamination from worms or something. And that would obviously reduce the carcass um, size and the size of the goats. So that's where we were able to come in and support and, you know, help the transition. So much so that they're now doing it in two days, the centralized buying points working with informal local agents you know we call them micro entrepreneurs who just given the right type of support and training were really effective in just providing a service to the local farmers and also being an aggregation point
0: yeah it makes sense so that those centralized buying points we kind of take it for granted but yeah of course there needs to be there's there's the last mile distribution there's the last mile collection those are both similar problems though a little different absolutely so on your website, you, let me see all these different organiz, all these different countries you've worked yeah. in: Ghana, Malawi, Mozambique, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Uganda, Zambia, and then you know two to five organizations in each of these. Let's dig into some some other case studies. Is there any other ones in particular that- So a really
1: good one that I've really enjoyed is in Uganda. It is with a company that is doing village chickens. And so the, the original parent co- company came out of Ethiopia very successful. So when we started working with them in Uganda, it was really fairly new. A couple of months that they'd been working in Uganda And we're looking at how would they expand the program of these village chickens. So what they were doing is getting smallholder farmers to brood day old chicks, grow them out to being a month old and then selling those on to the market. Now the market could be to primarily was other farmers that wanted to grow them out for the meat market or they were gonna grow them out for the egg laying side. The biggest challenge, though, with with any chicken is the first week of brooding and you get a high level of mortality. And so they obviously had a wonderful model that worked really well in Ethiopia, didn't translate as well. Do you know why? You know, just a whole lot of different aspects. So in Ethiopia, they had very strong government extension officers that were very supportive of the program. Who actually had really good communications within the field.
0: So here's a little bit of a tangent, but related. The thing that you say about chicks is so interesting and so important. So the last few months, I've been raising chickens, here in in Mexico where I live. Great stuff. And where I live, my house is on the grid, but the farm's not on the grid. Right. And like you said, the first week is so hard to keep your chickens alive because these poor things, they're not with their mother. And they Correct. don't have anything to keep them warm. Correct. And if you're off the grid, if you have a brooder, that's electric, it's pretty easy to keep them warm and pretty cheap. If you don't have electricity, it's really hard. So you can use kerosene or you can use charcoal, Correct. but these kind of things, they're smoky and they can go out in the middle of the night. And the birds they could catch hop on fire into It's crazy. Sh- yeah. yeah. The birds could die and yeah, they could blow out. You know, your kerosene could go out in the middle of the yeah. night they could fall on the ground and then catch them fire and then kill all your chickens. Yeah. So, and I've talked to some of my uh, entrepreneurs I work with who do solar and say, okay, awesome, great solar for the home, for lighting, but like, what about all these other things that are useful, like, you know, brooding chickens? It's pretty hard to do it cost effectively because you also, you only need it for one or two weeks out of the ch- entire chicken's life, which might be, you know, six weeks to, you know, a year or two. And so it's really hard actually to keep these chickens alive. I only lost one out of um, 50 that's the that first week, which was good. I think if you lose 2%, that's like expected. Correct. You want to but keep really, it way under it is, 5%. But yeah, like you said, very, very hard to keep them alive. And the other thing that's interesting, in the US, you can just order chickens online, and then they'll be shipped through the postal exactly. service. I'm not sure if anyone's people listening probably have done this. Some of them, a lot of them don't know this. They arrive like the next day, two days later, and they're fine. As long as it's not freezing cold, when you order them, they're going to be fine, super cheap to ship them. So here in Mexico, it's like a dollar per chick. It's really hard um, to get them. You can't get them to deliver. There's no place online. You can order them. And I imagine for Uganda, it's similar mm-hmm. where you can't just like order online and then have the postal service deliver because the postal service, there's no address doesn't box exist. the service doesn't work the same way. Mm-hmm. So the distribution is way more challenging in Mexico. In Uganda, I don't know, probably maybe it's similar. And the other thing about Ethiopia. Is electricity is very cheap in Ethiopia because they have the dam. It's very cheap to have electricity there. And it's definitely because it's a centralized government, they've expanded the grid better than in Uganda. So I wonder if that's related at all to this. But that's just my
1: no, Absolutely, absolutely true. You know, I mean all theory. of those things that you've touched on are, are so true. And and I mean with the Dale chicks, so so what was effectively happening is that these Dale chicks were coming across the border. There was a brooder in in Kigali in Rwanda. So it was coming across the border and being delivered to smallholder farmers on, on the Ugandan side, starting in the western side. They tried going through the government extension offices. That wasn't helpful. They said, yes, you're fine, just carry on. And they started to try and build up a system and trying to find the right kind of people who could assist them. So number one, to identify the agents. Number two, when they found the agents who were farmers themselves, the informal sector was hired, whether it was motorbike, you know, the border borders, in, in East Africa to deliver the chicks to the farmer's doorstep. And then make sure that the farmer has the right heating sources, often the charcoal burners, that they have the right sort of bedding on the floor, that they have fairly decent food to, to see them through. And then if they if there were any illnesses, that they were able to respond appropriately to that. So that's just been really interesting for me, because I think out of all of them, this this has the potential reach, I think when we signed the contract with this organization, it was for 200,000 smallholder farmers. And I think we've we've got close to that. But we've had to be flexible in how we've managed because they they've had to iterate their model several times. And this is what is so great the company about
0: to provide the
1: this organization is because they've had that client feedback. They've realized that not all farmers are good salespeople. And you know that really, they've had to bring in then extra kind of layer called the village ambassador, who's then helped to sell the month old chicks, and created that demand um, coming from the agents. So they've now got the whole system in place. But not only that, they've been training their own staff. And how do they capture the information? How do they get the feedback from, from the, the customers? They get the, the, the customer's phone number or they get the agent's phone number and saying, so how did it go? How, what was your mortality like, mm. you know, what, where did you need more support, getting that feedback? What do you like mm. about the bird? What do yeah, Getting you that like feedback is so
0: hard. It's so hard. I mean, there's, there's, there's typical forms that we have yeah. uh, net promoter score is a way to do it, but a lot of those things aren't available. They're not available on WhatsApp or SMS, and then who's phoning them if it's some like intern will that information actually get to a decision maker who can act on that or not so it's, that's so, it's such exactly a hard thing to do it. and
1: i was going to say to you so this information was gathered and then used as a key management tool to inform what they need to do going forward you know whether, whether it was like a pricing adjustment whether it was supporting some agents that had shown interest but didn't have the financial you know um, backup to buy 500 birds so, so, how do they extend the credit to these, these agents? How do they form their contracts? How do they know they're going to get their money back without you know, losing their shirt, as it were? So, it's been really mm-hmm. interesting to see how they've iterated. But interestingly enough, through the COVID pandemic, large broiler operations actually had to close their operations. Whereas in the kind of local villages, it, yes, they couldn't open to the, go to the market, the, the transport was limited. But because they were right there in the community, the sales just carried on and you know with the with the new sort of models and the iterations they actually were increasing in their demand and then there were challenges of how do you get them across the border you know certain things about having to ship in eggs and they started their own hatchery in in Kampala bringing in fertilized eggs and you know how do you do that and you know so it's just been evolving and it's been so amazing to see and the outreach in the community and having been there and talking to people on the ground to speak to the farmers on the ground. And you get these sort of woman groups that are buying a hundred laying hens and they, they're selling the eggs and it's the protein. And it's the, you know, the health side of it, that the, the communities are benefiting from as well.
0: And the health thing is really interesting about a uh, uh, chicken eggs. Yeah. My girlfriend just asked me the other day, if you could have one protein, animal protein for the rest of your life, what would it be? And we were thinking, I'm like, I like, I really like pork personally. By the end of the day, we decided chicken eggs. Are like the most versatile healthy if you had to have one protein you're stuck with it you could do a lot with chicken eggs Absolutely. you can make some custards with that yeah. but yeah chicken eggs are they're, they're way up there the other thing that's interesting is it's so the de- decentralization made it anti-fragile i do not know. If you, have you read that book no i haven't it feels like a book you would love by Nassim taleb but where the centralized organizations they have a lot of trouble getting distribution in a crisis but everyone's still alive everyone needs to eat and so someone's going to Someone's going to need to get chickens, and if you're already there in the village, I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. So this is a project that happened pretty recently, 2019, right? And is, we're talking about Usima chicken, chicken, chicken yeah? yeah. And so that was for around half a million dollars, the project, Correct. according to your website. Yeah. Now, you said that they changed along the way. One thing that I found very challenging working with any funder. Grant or equity or whatever is you want to change the course along the way, it could be very hard to change that. It Seems like that wasn't a problem in this case where they had to make changes, and that I'm not sure how your funding was set up such that so, they could make those changes. You know,
1: we we obviously all have a service contract with, with with our partners. You have to, you know, what is what is what is the expectation to deliver? You know, what are we supporting with? You know, it's very clearly defined. But having had my own, um, you know background in the commercial private sector, I realized that, you know, when you doing the brainstorming, when you are coming to an agreement on the initial contract, and when you start rolling out, there's things that are going to have to change along the way. It does not make sense throwing money down a drain at something that is not going to work.
0: Is there any other organization we can do as a case study as well?
1: maybe in Tanzania, we can talk about, it's a very large company. It's a coffee company, which is called Taylor Winch on on the website here. So, so Taylor Winch is part of a very big international organization. They were telling them they all had to go through the auction. And then you had the big players like Starbucks and other big buyers just pulling out because there's no guaranteed sustainability. And their sustainability is they want to be able to trace exactly which farmer sent in the product, you know, what has been sprayed on it, you know, just having that confidence. So there was no traceability. I think probably one of my favourite anecdotes from this one is a gender programme that they that they were involved in. And so you know, I I came back from one trip and I and I must admit I was gushing. I was like, gosh, this is really amazing what I'm seeing here. Because there's some, you know, good agricultural practices that you, you just really struggle to get smallholders to adopt. And it's just Counterintuitive intuitive for the farmers, you know, why should I prune my coffee trees when this is the branch that's going to be producing the coffee berries? But a lot of the trees are old, they needed to be rejuvenated, they were low yielding. And in order to get a higher yield, you've got to prune them back or prune part of your orchard back and then you do the other part later side. And we, they were just battling. So the staff at Taylor Winch were explaining the reasons, giving them good ideas why and, you know, not interested when we started this gender program, it really ticked quite a few boxes. And it was all about the farmer and it was very personal. What is your vision? What is your personal vision? What is your family vision? And what is your farm and your vision for your farm? In order to meet your personal and your family vision, you might want a new house, you might want to go to university, you might you know want to buy a mm. motorbike or whatever it is, you want new furniture, you want to get your kids to school. In order to reach those personal visions, your vision for your farm has to be the one that's going to be paying for these personal visions. And of course, these were coffee cooperatives. So having gone through all of the training, and it's quite intensive, they form these groups, and it's mixed. And it's not a woman only group, it's mixed. So it's like 20 households will come together in one group and the household, if it's a widow, obviously it's just a single person. If it is, but it has to be a husband and wife that are linked in together. So they all came together and they started these groups. So it was addressing gender issues because it was getting husbands and wives to talk to one another, improving communications. And the leaders of these groups were also mediating on some of the household conflicts. And anecdotally, what they did tell me is that domestic violence had reduced. One man actually told me in this meeting, he said, I used to think my, my wife was being, what was the word he used? Difficult. I think, I, I used to just think my wife was just being difficult. And now they could understand that, you know, the vision for the wife and the goals for the wife and the goals for the men, and actually there was some overlap. And that the labor, you know, the woman in the household couldn't do all the work in the coffee orchards that the husband actually needed to come in and support in certain areas, if they were to achieve the yields of what they wanted to do. And one of the the things that they did say is that we have now started so i'm like so what does it mean we have now started no we've we've, we've now planted you know one person had planted 25 new coffee seedlings and this was a major breakthrough others had said no i've started pruning back my coffee trees and i'm like what that's incredible there was one young lady that i spoke to and and i loved what she had to say she obviously had been given a bit of an orchard through her family and she said so my goal and she she read them out and in fact this is the other thing, I'm going on a rabbit trail here. They, they've got these books where Love they're it. actually drawing their goals. So, you've got these pictures. So, if you're wanting furniture for the house, there's a, you know, person sitting at a table in a chair, They're coffee berry trees, you know, having high yielding coffee trees for their farms. They've got these kind of green stick-like plants with little red dots all along them. And, and if they're wanting chickens or they're wanting another cow, a milking cow, they're actually drawing the cow. And so, it's very visual would open their books and show me this is, these are my goals, this is what I'm seeing, I'm, this is where I'm here and I've got diseases in my coffee and this is where I want to be, and this, you know, good looking coffee, for example. But this one girl said to me, she said, I really want to obviously go to university, but I want to go on safari and she named the local national park that was close by, is that she'd never been there. And so she wanted to go on safari that was one of her goals and i was like yay you know good on you but setting these personal goals in conjunction with the farm goals has made it very much a personal thing and i i have never seen the kind of level of passion that I saw that was coming from both men and women in the group. I mean, one lady just tears falling, you know, down her cheeks, just explaining her her background, and you know, it was a it was a tough one, and why she's so passionate about this, and why it was so engaging. And so, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I I. Had spoke to the the managing director of the company and I said, This is amazing. You know, it's so good to see this working on the ground. And so he visited this exact same group that I went to the following week. And it's very much a part of the Maasai tribal community. And so he was there and they brought out these beautiful sort of Maasai type cloths. And his first inclination was, oh, they're probably gonna try and sell me some pieces of the cloth. But he was blown away completely because it wasn't to sell him anything. It was a gift to say, thank you for coming to work with us. And he just said, Sandy, I've never had that before. Incredible. So I was excited by that.
0: That's really interesting. Who came up with this idea to do this vision planning?
1: So it uh, is part of a system called the GALS program, gender action learning systems. So, fortunately, within Taylor Winch, they had a lady there who had been trained previously before she had even joined Taylor Winch and is also very much a passionate advocate for this, you know, and getting buy in. But it was one of those areas where. It was a little bit of a gray area you know do we support it don't we support it it's going to take from
0: agdevco's perspective uh
1: sorry no from the company agribusiness perspective from our perspective you know we really see that this is also where development funds can be used to pilot and test out and fortunately you know the organizations that were uh, supporting us and the SDU are very much about knowledge sharing you know lessons learned and they're not always having to be the winning lessons. You know, sometimes learning from others' challenges and failures are also helpful. So they'd approached us and said, This is what we're wanting to do. And I'm like, Yeah, you know, that sounds pretty good. Let's see how it works. I've never heard of the system before, but let's see how it works out. And so they did, uh, and they they got started on it. But from an agribusiness perspective, it was like, We know, you know, it's going to take money to invest and it's going to take training time. And, you know, so from an agribusiness perspective, they were, yeah it, it sounds good but we can't do it now and we, we, we you know we're not sure if this is going to really be helpful to our core business and right. you know all of those sort of aspects but
0: brilliant at the end of the day if you can't dream about something then it's a little bit hard to be excited about it there's some saying if you want to um, discover new shores don't teach people to build a boat teach them to dream for the open ocean and it's something similar to that and i've definitely done this before where i draw out my vision of what the future should be. And I've taken weekend classes. I've got a, you know, a coach, a therapist, things like that. I've seen (laughs) over the years, and many people don't have those opportunities. And definitely not smallholders
1: in the middle of Africa.
0: Yeah. Right. And it's, there's this, we don't understand psychology very well. We don't understand human minds very well, but it's the software for our our hardware, you know, our physical hardware. And then we've got the software and we don't really know how to program Mm -hmm. it. We kind of know how to program it. There's K through 12 school. There's a few different things, but we don't really know. How to do it very well but it just and that's and that maybe keeps us from trying different things but it's awesome that this was tried and if it's the first time that someone's had the experience of diagramming their vision for the future that's going to be super impactful Great, that i mean i took really... so many
1: photographs of these books just to just to like show my colleagues back home And yes, I know it's early stages of of this particular one, because obviously COVID came in in between time and and kind of delayed things a little bit more because you do have to get engagement at the community level, whether it's traditional leadership and, you know, you've got to engage everyone and, and give it a chance to have some success. So, yeah, it was exciting to see. Wow,
0: that's really cool. So if someone wants to, and the other thing is that a lot of grants, they ask for a gender aspect. Um, you time. know, sometimes it's limited to, uh, you know, making sure there's equal number of men and women or more women that are employed or whatever, which is like, okay, yeah, sure. But some have a hard time when writing a proposal. Okay. What can we do here? That's actually like pro-gender. I don't understand it you know, super well myself. I don't think anyone really understands it really well. You know, there are some differences between men and women and we're not sure how to integrate that into like the future world where there was this past, very divided way we did things And the future. is gonna be different. We're not really sure, but this is a really great example of how people, it wasn't like forced top down. It's like create your vision and they did, and it totally makes sense why that would work Mm -hmm. and I definitely can see how I can incorporate that into, you know, future proposals where it's like, it's good for the business, you know? For people to have, see the future, whether you're yeah. selling coffee or solar panels or water pumps or money transfer services, whatever it is. And to have that, it also fulfills the needs of the grantor. Cause right now they're very vague usually. Okay. Like what's the gender mainstreaming aspect of this is like, okay, well, what are you, what are you looking for exactly here? Uh, I think they don't know in a lot of cases and there's not a lot of case studies of how to have a successful gender aspect of your proposal of your project.
1: So this is great. These, as you say, are soft topics, but they're so important. And agriculture, African, traditionally, you know, the culture as well is very paternalistic. And so there can be a lot of backlash, there can be a lot of offense taken within communities. And and certainly your plan is not to increase gender based violence. So it's how you engage those communities, even as an agribusiness. So trying to make it practical from a business perspective as well. So we've got a couple of right, um, papers that, you know, that, that we've got on our website with regards to this. And, and I think you know, if anyone's interested, uh, they can could, could take a look at it.
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to link to those resources in the show notes so people can take a look.
1: Great. That would be good.
0: All right. That's that's really interesting, Sandy. Okay. So now i want to transition to hearing what you're working on now mm. what you're working on next so you just started a, a company BioAg, yep. and this seems to connect very much with you worked with all kinds of we should mention as well that you're in zimbabwe you've seems like you've spent were you born in zimbabwe
1: no so actually i was born in kampala uganda but we, we hmm. left Uganda as a family back in the early 70s, just before Idioman came into power. And it was just becoming a little bit intolerable, wow. trying to get through roadblocks. And my dad, who was born in Uganda, was put on a work permit. And you know, it was renewable every six months and then renewable every three months. And it was just, yeah, it was becoming quite a challenge. So we moved down to Rhodesia, as it was in those days, yeah.
0: What a time to move to Zimbabwe. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So it was a crazy time. Did we know that there was a civil war brewing? No, I don't think they would have moved here otherwise, <laughs> but anyway, I, I've done all my schooling oh, and, my. and uh, tuition in Zimbabwe, tertiary, t- uh, you know, education was in South Africa.
0: Wow. So yeah, you've, you've got a lot of stories to share, so I know we need to do a few more follow-ups <laughs> and hear some stories. Oh my gosh. And, but you worked in Zimbabwe as a horticulturalist yes. for several companies yeah. before. So uh, any, want any flavor you want to add yeah, to that? Yeah, no, for what you're doing I was next? extremely
1: fortunate in that I, I was given a bursary as a scholarship Well, not a scholarship, it was a bursary. I had to work it off with a fertilizer company here in Zimbabwe, and it was at the stage where horticulture was really unknown and it was a fairly new thing, you know, so
0: Well, what's horticulture? Horticulture is growing vegetables, vegetables, flowers,
1: fruit, you know, tropical
0: How, I mean, how is that unknown? Because that's just So, you know, as an industry,
1: our our farmers here and agriculture in Zimbabwe was purely livestock and the cereals, the grains um, and tobacco in those days.
0: Okay, it was unknown in Zimbabwe. So very
1: few people were actually going into the horticultural sector, particularly for large scale production and export. So it was just something I mean, I grew up um, with flowers and pot plants and cuttings. And I, I would go visiting other people's, you know, and come back with a whole handful of flower cuttings and things like that. So it's always been a passion of a passion of mine. So it came up through the industry and great grounding through the, the fertilizer company, which was Zimbabwe fertilizer company then. And through that, went on to exports, uh, veggie exports. I, I, I really sort of focused on the vegetable side of the horticulture. So spent many years in a seed company, horticultural seed company, export company, as well as obviously fertilizer company. My background is in conventional agriculture, ah, ZFC. You know, you put on inorganic fertilizers, and if you've got a pest problem or a or a weed, you spray a chemical. You know, to solve the problem. Mm. And so. I think over a period of time, I've always been really interested in composting and I've got my own vermicompost here with the worms and you know, just looking at conservation agriculture is a big, big one and over a period of time. And I think where I really started pivoting was about 16 years ago, when my dad died of cancer. And when you have anyone really close to you and you've had to kind of help care for them during those final stages of the disease, it's devastating and it's life changing. But I kept asking myself, why is there so much cancer you know, in the community? And I'll guarantee that, you know, everyone who's listening today has, knows someone who's fighting cancer, or has lost the battle, or is in remission. You know, a, a good friend, family, or that, you know, which was unheard of when we were growing up, we, we hardly heard of anyone with cancer. And so you start questioning you like, what, what is causing it? Is it our lifestyle? What are we doing? What are we eating? And obviously, a key component of that is agriculture, farmers. You know, what how are we growing our how are we growing our crops? So you know, over a period of time, I, I've kind of been transitioning and thinking well, there's got to be a better way to do this. And looking back in the the export veggie market, that when we started, I mean. I, I cringe at some of the products we were using. I mean, they were legal, they were registered, they were fine, you know, but now what we're hearing and what has been proven by science is that they were really toxic and, and the, the things that they were causing. So I think over time, exposure of, you know, certain pesticides and and, and the downside benef- you know, benefits, downside to them and where I've transitioned now and COVID was brilliant time for me. You know, it was probably one of the times that I could just stay at home and sort of study and see what's going out there the science that's been coming behind and saying why, you know, why have we been focusing on the chemical aspects of production? You know, I I clearly remember in in my ZFC days being told, oh, this is the soil analysis and this is the organic matter and, and we just ignore that because really it doesn't mean much. We just look at the NPK and calcium magnesium and we find out what we need to add as fertilizer. And so right. we've really, you know, pivoted and we're finding out more and more why soil health and the soil biology is so critical to the overall health of the plant, and then subsequently livestock and people.
0: So there's NPK magnesium, okay, that's the kind of traditionally what people care about. What are the other ones of the soil health that you were ignoring before, but you think are important
1: actually? Oh, absolutely. It's all the soil biology. So it's, you know, where where's the soil life? So. Yes carbon is a big indicator in in the soil but it's it's your bacteria it's your fungi like your mycorrhizal fungi in particular so so what has really happened now is
0: So what is that My, mycorrhizal how do you test
1: fungi that? fungi you know we yeah, we yeah
0: what is that what does it do for you and It's
1: it's amazing how do you, know you know it's, a good it's, level? it's it, it produces glomulin, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly and it helps to aggregate and glue the soil together but what it does also, it helps to keep long-term carbon in the soil as well. So it'll break down your more woody matter, your uh, waste bacteria will be breaking down the soft green stuff that you're putting in there. It's the more woody and it and it builds up your soil carbon as well. But what we find- So
0: mycorrhizal fungi, what is it? It's a, it's a multicellular organism. It's like a, so it's a fungus, but yeah, Fung- you can't see st- it. Right? No, it's, you it's-
1: can, so you can see it. it, it in your compost heaps, you, uh, you often see these white fungal Filaments. It's the high feet okay, that is. you see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you mm. you you want to build that up with organic matter in the soil. But what we're finding out is that you know there's so many kind of new scientific terms, and maybe they're not so new, but they're coming out more relevantly now. Is the car- liquid carbon cycle? So the traditional photosynthesis, the plant is taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, using light energy, converting it into simple sugars pushing it down to the roots. Now, everyone thought that that was just producing nice green leaves and the fruit, but they're pushing it down to the roots and push pushing out as root exudates, which is feeding your soil life. So we need to be testing more of that. And you know, so measurements now like the bricks content, measuring the sugar content of a plant can give you an indication on whether it's going to be disease or pest resistant. So generally over 12, hmm. if the leaves in the plant are over 12,
0: 12, what bricks percent percent or what? sorry,
1: it's a percentage.
0: Brick, what's a, what's so a brick so bricks is,
1: is, just a, you use a refractometer, you squeeze some juices from a leaf and you put it on the glass, um, and you look through it in the light and it's got a, like a, a measurement, a, a ruler type thing, and you go right up to, I mean, some are really smart.
0: like a pH kind so of So not
1: quite a pH color. Yeah. But it's, it's like a measure of the sugars in the, in the plant. Mm-hmm. And so if it's over 12%, mm-hmm. You are less likely to get pest problems and disease problems. And so the healthier your plant is, and that has a lot to do with your soil life in, in, in the soil as well.
0: So what's this refractometer? Is this a f- affordable thing for, for me, or is it, affordable yeah, thing for no, it a farmer to get?
1: Absolutely. It is. I mean, I've, I've one got one here. What you do need to do though, it's, 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 it's quite variable. If it's overcast, it'll be slightly different because obviously the photosynthesis, the chlorophyll and the leaves is not working as much. If if you're getting a big thunderstorm, you find the plants are incredible. They just push all that uh, sugars down to their root in case something happens to the, you know, if they have a hail storm or something. Mm. And within an hour of a thunderstorm, if you measure it, it'll go down to the roots. So you want to try and be consistent, you know, on a daily basis and tracking it. So you're tracking trends rather than, you know, infinite values. So yeah, it's a great, it's a great tool. It's a great way of determining, you know, quick and simple way of how healthy your crop is or how, Mm. you know, uh, weak it is.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes
1: to to one people can check out. So it's great, you know, so bringing all of this together. So my background was conventional, started questioning there has to be a better way to do this. You know, is it a lifestyle change? You know, when you're reading what's out there that there's oranges that are being produced without vitamin C, that the nutrient density of the food that we're eating these days is less than what it was in the 1940s, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then finding out, you know, people like Joel Salatin, Gabe Brown, you know, people who are doing it and achieving those yields, because this is the big thing it's it's got to be economically viable. At the end of the day, you know, you've got to be able to achieve those, those yields with the different processes without using the same level of, you know, pesticides and harming the environment at the end of the day. And it's got to make sense. Uh, Sense hmm. mentally and also sense in the pocket.
0: <laughs> do you do you know how you got connected with uh, Joel Salatin, Gabe Brown, and that? Oh, gosh, how-
1: Google is an amazing tool, and this is where COVID has come in. And uh, you know, I've had such incredible opportunity to attend workshops, seminars, listening to you know whatever it is online and having access to them. So there's the annual events that they've had to put online, and for the first time speakers coming online and having access to that sitting here in Harare, Zimbabwe, it's, a, you know, just the, the opportunities that are out there and the knowledge as well, and the kind of the sharing of the knowledge and sort of building on the information base that we have has been amazing. So really just triggered my next move, which is bioag, ag. And, and my passion is really to see farmers transitioning from a conventional way of doing agriculture into a more regenerative way. And, and supporting them in that because a lot of it is that we just don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. So just providing, you know, some training sessions, providing, you know, opportunities, because cover crops, diversity is, is all part of that, supporting them getting building up community of like minded people. In fact, I have my first lunch and learn, I'm calling it a lunch and learn this this Wednesday to get farmers talking to one another, they all kind of doing their own thing in their own place, but to start sharing the knowledge of what's working and how it's working. Because when you're starting something new, there's always, there's probably going to be something that will trip you up. And you know, I was talking to a farmer the other day and he said, well, this is all great. But now I've got a weed problem. You know, but how do I control that? Or I've got, you know, I've got extra cutworm that have come in. And I'm, and I'm not sure I wasn't expecting that, you know, so trying to preempt these issues and and how are other farmers dealing with it?
0: So BioAg right now is a sort of a training, seminar, consulting business, and supplying is that of right? inputs.
1: So just
0: you're supplying inputs too. So
1: so so working on cover crop seed. You know, obviously livestock and incorporating a more holistic way of farming. You know that livestock is so critical as well. You know, as as bringing it in and, and seeing the carbons sequestration that is going on and how much it increases in the soil because of the use of
0: so cover crops, like alfalfa, clover, just
1: mixed cover crops. You know, they, they you. talk about quorum sensing and work that has been done in the States, found that if you just plant a single cover crop, it's not nearly as effective. And it's almost like when you have a tipping point about eight or more different uh, cover crops mixed. So your legumes, your grasses. Um, your broadleafs, uh, your brassicas, you know, mixing all those different family groups together, it seems to just be a trigger. And, and the way to explain it is, you know, in the oceans, you suddenly see this fluorescent bloom. And it's when there's there's enough of those organisms, and I don't know quite which ones there are that do that. But in the soil, it's the same thing. You've got that big diversity. All those roots are pushing that, that liquid carbon out there. But it's also, you know, some will be doing certain bacteria, some will be, you know, feeding more more fungal mix. It's, it's all of this I mean, mixed. It's like an economy.
0: Together. If you only have blacksmiths, it's a very boring economy. Exactly. You can't do a whole lot. Yeah. You need some horse breeders in there. <laughs>
1: exactly. So so getting that so, diversity and then you've got to get also, you know, Elaine Ingham talks about the soil food web. And it's not just about, you know, feeding the bacteria and fungi, but it's then the predators that eat those so it's the protozoa and the microarthropods and you know the whole system starts building up Mm -hmm, mm
0: yeah now it's really exciting you're doing the inputs as well because here so i'm borrowing renting a farm here and we're doing tomatoes and some herbs and some vegetables as well some chickens like i mentioned we're getting some pigs soon hopefully but we're starting from like ground zero, yeah. where there's the soil is in horrible condition. Maybe 0.5 percent carbon, when it could get up to like seven to Correct. ten. It there's it's completely dead soil. There's nothing in it. There's no micro. There's no bacteria. There's no. Well, I can't see the bacteria, but there's no insects at all doing anything in there. And it's just been farmed traditionally for years and years, oh. growing chili yeah. peppers and plowed using plastic culture which is yeah. kind of this insane thing which i think counts as organic actually because you put this plastic sheet on top of the soil so it keeps all the weeds down but what happens is like it gets ripped up in the sun and starts flying around so there's little bits of plastic pieces all over this farm been trying to clean it up anyway so we're starting at that and trying to as organic as possible grow with you know you can't do completely organic from square one yeah, because you got, got all kinds of problems but we've been able to like mulch great the really thick mulch mm-hmm. and that keeps the weeds down basically perfectly mm-hmm. we do drip irrigation there just because there's very little water here but then getting all the inputs that are needed mm-hmm. so in an ideal situation you have ladybugs and you have good flowers and you've got wasps that eat you yeah. know the aphids etc you know we can't we're not starting there so we have to get the neem spray yeah with the soap, yeah. safer soap as yeah. well. And there's this bacterium, if it's a bacteria or some something from the bacteria, kristaki, which is against the worms because the worms are destroying like the basil. Like they're skeletons.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: That's the one, yeah. BTs. Mm. Yes. And it's a particular strain which is against Correct. worms, which is, which is organic. Yeah. Anyway, finding these inputs is so hard in, in Mexico. 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 Online in the US, you know, I can just type it in, delivered, Amazon Prime, whatever here super hard so I'm really considering being like oh maybe the business opportunity here is not growing tomatoes it's just creating the inputs Correct. because it's not possible everyone here does everyone here does traditional farming plastic culture with all the chemicals etc it's just not really possible to grow any other way because and then the other crazy thing is there's this dump site which is causing all this problem in this town we're in all this smoke is going towards the tourist attractions and what they're doing is they're taking all the palm fronds, et cetera. And they dump them right in the dump with all the batteries and all the plastic instead of mulching it. And then you can have those, all this mulch. So the solutions are right here.
1: It's how you manage that. It's a management issue. Absolutely, yeah,
0: Getting it started. So basically the inputs are missing. It's really hard to, I speak decent Spanish, so I can look these things up, but it just doesn't really exist. You can't so, really order these so kind of things. So we're fortunate
1: in that so we've got some input suppliers here that are starting to bring in and, and have oh, yeah. the biologicals and the biological products, which gives us more options. The the challenge I mean, and the key thing here, and you know, we saw it in in Zimbabwe when we had the land reform program. A lot of the commercial farmers left the country, and they thought we would we'll just start up, this, do the same thing in Mozambique or Zambia, and very soon, within five years, a lot of them have failed. And I mean, just talking to one of our our partners in in Mozambique is like, if it takes three weeks just to fix a tractor tire puncher, because the industry, the support industry is not there. Whereas in Zim, we had a big support base, the input supplies, you know, the banks were very, the irrigation guys, you know, the whole bank shoot. And that's really also what I'm wanting to do here is try and build an ecosystem for, for, for success. And it's not just going to be me, but I need to have, you know, the, the guys that supply the equipment that we can do, you know, the, the minimum tillage. If we need to, that we can do the mowing of the cover crops and shoot it onto you know as, as a mulching for the avocado trees, for example. But then also the other input suppliers that we all work together. So at the end of the day, that the farmer has access to these things. And and you know, so I'm I'm looking at supplying a, a certain niche side of it, but also the tools for measurement. So what I'm looking at is doing is the penetrometer, you know, checking the compact. Compaction in the soil, the refractometers. There's little eyeglass things to do. You know, the the looking under the leaf to see the spider mite that you can struggle with. You know, your eyes. So trying to bring all of those in, and so
0: like the toolkit. There's a toolkit. The toolkit. Yeah, you you
1: don't know where you're starting from if you don't measure where where you start starting at and you know where you're going to. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. it feels like there's a great opportunity to leapfrog traditional agriculture in Africa the way that landline telephones are leapfrogged. Correct. Um, and hopefully there's an opportunity, especially you're well-positioned knowing the grant side as well, to actually make that happen, the actual, the knowledge of what could be done and the knowledge of how to acquire the money to make it happen.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, and I mean, my, my sort of probably biggest challenge is also how do, how do we reach out to the smallholder farmers and, and get them into a more regenerative way of production as well? So yeah, that that's, that's, it's, it's going to be an adventure. We'll, we'll have to see yeah. how it goes.
0: And, it's, and for the poor smallholder farmers, it was like first, you know, decades, it was like, use all these chemicals. This is what you need. Use. And you've got to plow and you've you got to do crops. all of these things. Yeah. 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 It's like, and it's like, wait, 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 it's a joke. All right, we're changing we're changing the plan, now. Okay, plan. now we're not plowing <laughs> we're not using the chemicals anymore and they're like all right so which one do i trust now so I, I, it's going to be very interesting to see so you know what well, I, I mean a, a lot of them couldn't afford the
1: pesticides anyway and but what they were doing was it was you know it was really difficult they just went in making money and also you know to have that composite combination of the livestock and you know, mixing the two together, often smallholders don't have cattle. It's too expensive. They haven't got to that stage. They, you know, they generally will have a couple of goats and some chickens. And it's just, it's, it's all down to management. You know, how do we put it all together in a far better way?
0: Hmm. Great, Sandy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for all that information. Thank you for the case studies. Pleasure. And uh, thanks for catching me on the podcast. Good. This podcast is sponsored by Grant & Co. Are you looking for a job with flexible hours, pays well, and allows you to work wherever? Consider applying to work at Grant & Co. Grant & Co. helps social enterprises raise capital and is looking to hire talented business analysts, writers, and financial modelers. Consider applying at thegrant.co slash job, or you can check out the description of this podcast for a link thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please leave a message. If you go to wishesgranted.media, you can record your message and we will air your question in the next podcast.